0: Most of us have heard the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid. As many know, the phrase is often used as a taunt that refers to people who either easily believe something they've been told, don't question ideas, or give blind obedience and gullibility. Though this phrase has been worked into our cultural vocabulary, most people don't know the gruesome background behind it or its true meaning. What is up, EWU crew? Today, we are taking an in-depth look at the horrific events of Jonestown that inspired the colloquial phrase we know so well. We will be investigating how a charismatic leader with a delusional vision for a better world convinced those who followed him to do the unthinkable. Today's discussion is haunting and includes parts that some may find disturbing. If you enjoy true crime, mysteries, and true stories, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get into it. The 1960s and 70s are remembered as a time when cults and communes flourished. There were many reasons for this cultural phenomenon. The rapid development of technology, the Vietnam War, birth control, and more common drug use. At the time, people worried about the breakdown of society and these rapid changes left a gaping hole in the lives of many, with people yearning for something more substantial and someone to make sense of the world for them. For some, answers could be found in spirituality and the rising movements of religious freedom that were a pushback against organized religion. It was within this context that James Warren, Jim Jones, was born in 1931 in Crete, a small town in rural Indiana. The Great Depression was in full swing, and this hard economic period was the driving factor behind Jim Jones's rough upbringing and the financial difficulties that led him to living in a shack without plumbing. After his parents' marriage broke down and they separated, Jones moved to Richmond, Indiana with his mother and lived in a slightly less impoverished state. He grew up with an enthusiasm for learning about different religions and an odd fascination with death. In fact, he was described by those who knew him as a really weird kid who would preach to other children. He reportedly befriended a Pentecostal minister when he was 10, and would attend many different churches to learn as much as he could about religion. Even as a young boy, he was opposed to the practices of dancing and drinking, which he saw as sinful behavior. He was known to read the works of Stalin, Gandhi, Marx, and Mao. There are many strange stories of Jones, some that hint at personality quirks that may have led to his later infamous reputation. One such story from the 1940s tells of a young Jones being patted on the head by a German prisoner of war who was being forced to stay in Lynn, Indiana, where Jones was living at the time. He reportedly responded with a Hitler salute and by shouting, hail Hitler. Another story says that Jones was known to have stabbed a cat to death and would hold small funerals for animals in his backyard. If these tales are true, then Jones certainly displayed a penchant for the morbid and dark aspects of life, even from a young age. Despite these disturbing accounts, Jones excelled in school and graduated with honors from Richmond High School in 1948. Following school, he became an orderly at a hospital before going to Indiana University, Bloomington, where he eventually earned a degree in secondary education though it took him 10 years to complete. While working at the hospital, he met an older nursing student named Marceline Baldwin, and the two were married in June 1949 and moved to Indianapolis. At around 20 years old, Jones attended Communist Party gatherings and openly opposed the US government for the rampant persecution of communists in the country. He became an outspoken Marxist and reportedly said that he wanted to demonstrate his dedication to communism by infiltrating the church. Following his religious passions, Jones became a self-ordained Christian minister in 1951 to 1952. In only a year, he began creating quite the reputation as a charismatic evangelist. In a rather revolutionary stance for the time, Jones wanted to hold racially integrated services, but he was not allowed to do so by his church. In response to the continued segregation of churches and services, and influenced by his communist beliefs, Jones started his own church in 1955, first called the Wings of Deliverance Church, but later known as the People's Temple. The People's Temple was one of the very first Midwestern churches that allowed people of different races to attend and was initially an interracial mission. The church struggled in the beginning due to the lack of financial aid that many other churches relied on to function. Jones tried a few outlandish schemes to drum up money, including reportedly going door-to-door selling live monkeys. Jones later tried faith healing which he had seen become extremely popular in recent years and attracted many supporters to other churches. Faith healing relies on the power of prayer and laying on of hands to encourage divine intervention to create physical and spiritual healing. Jones began to claim that he had the miraculous ability to heal the ill and infirm. In a sermon, Jones recalls his ability to heal.
1: Well, now before you get mad, good Catholic friends, you saw the woman spit of her cancer and you got one, you know it. You want to get healed from it, don't you? Well, you better set and get the truth because it's the truth that sets you free. You saw the one that came out of her cast yesterday. You saw the blind eyes that were open. You saw the back broken that was healed. You saw the one that was crippled up with arthritis in an accident that came running down. You saw all those. You saw the blinded eyes open. If you want to get that, honey, you better sit on your fanny and listen to what I got to say. <laughs> like the truth, you never will
0: get these healings. He also claims the ability to resurrect people from the dead, both literally and figuratively.
1: Sure, we have no dying here. Sure, we've had 209 people resurrected from the dead that have been carried in here with bow would even take on their legs. We've had their eyes set and they've been blue. Sure we can do that, but I tell you, that's not what's most wonderful. I'm looking over faces that were once dead in their trespasses of the old religions. They were dead under the old doctrines of fear, dead under the old concept of the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell. They were dead and now their mental concepts, their mind has been resurrected. That's the greatest resurrection of all. Their mind has been liberated. Their mind has been set free. They now think, they now know the truth and the truth
0: When he had a local AM radio station begin to play his sermons, Jones started to see greater success and more people flocked to hear his radical message. Around this time, Jones was known to have started studying Adolf Hitler and Mao and the specific ways that they manipulated large populations into following them. In the face of growing scrutiny, Jones and Marceline adopted several children together, many of whom were non-white, whom he would later call his rainbow family, a term he also used to describe his temple's congregation. Jones claimed the couple adopted because integration is a more personal thing to me now. It's a question of my son's future. Their children included Agnes, who was part Native American, Lou, Stephanie and Suzanne, who were all three Korean-American, Jim Jones, Jr., who was African-American and Tim Glenn Tupper, who was white. The couple also had a biological son whom they named Stephen Gandhi. Jones encouraged members of the people's temple to also adopt orphans from Korea as the war raged through the country. During the mid 1960s, a small congregation of about 100 people moved up to Northern California and the Redwood Valley. Then in the early 1970s, the ambitious Jones later expanded his following and decided to relocate his then 1,000 follower congregation's headquarters to San Francisco, while also opening a temple in Los Angeles. It was here in San Francisco that Jones truly rose to fame. The charismatic leader was soon nationally recognized by his trademark black sunglasses, perfectly tailored suits and slicked back black hair. Jones began to publicly donate to charitable causes that fought racism, championed black causes, built elderly nursing homes, gave clothing to those in need and supported rehabilitation centers for drug users and prostitutes. The People's Temple started to run social programs to help the needy by offering a free dining hall, medical aid, and even complimentary legal aid services. By the late 1970s, the numbers of People's Temple members are estimated to have been around 20,000. As his power and followers grew, his idealistic rhetoric culminated in fiery speeches at the pulpit. In these speeches, Jones talked of a better life for all while also condemning sex and romantic relationships. He created a unique mix of ideologies, preaching his gospel against racism with a distinct communist and socialist message, such as his claim that if you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born of sin. He even started to reject the Bible in his teachings, claiming that it was used to oppress women and anyone who wasn't white. He reportedly slammed a Bible onto a table and shouted, I've got to destroy this paper idol. Jones was charismatic and attracted people from all walks of life. To his followers, he was promising to create a church without racism and sexism, and vowed to build a world free of discrimination. In a mesmerizing sermon, Jones calls for liberation for all. We're not
1: gonna look to the past. We're going to have our own liberation today. We're gonna have our Messiah today. We're gonna have our deliverance today. Today is our day of salvation. Soon, Jones started to make the outlandish
0: claims that he was reincarnated as some of the world's greatest leaders all at once, including Jesus, Gandhi, Father divine, Gautama Buddha, and even Vladimir Lenin. One follower, Terry Buford O'Shea, said that when she met Jones at 19, she was sure that he had the ability to read minds and even cast spells. She recalled being both entranced by him and terrified. Despite his rhetoric about creating a better, more equal world, much of the donations that his followers gave to the people's temple ended up right in Jones's pocket. In some cases, people gave him everything that they had, indoctrinated by his message for the common good. In addition, negative press started to circulate as it was revealed that Jones demanded that followers refer to him as father or father of all. Jones also required followers to give up all of their belongings upon entering, including their houses and even the custody of their children so that they could be raised communally. Soon, Jones was also accused of faking his ability to heal cancer, beating his followers as a form of corporal punishment, and having multiple affairs with members of the temple. Despite his speeches condemning sex, these affairs even produced children including a son named Jim John with the church member Carolyn Layton, and later a son John Victor with Grace Stone. As more damning stories were released, including the rumor that he was addicted to drugs, Jones became distrustful of those around him and started to travel with bodyguards. Yet even with the growing negative press around Jones, many continued to flock to him and his message. Harvey Milk, the first ever openly gay politician elected to California, attended a congregation of the People's Temple and wrote to Jones saying, Reverend Jim, it may take me many a day to come back down from the high that I reached today. I found something dear today. I found a sense of being that makes up for all the hours and energy placed in a fight. I found what you wanted me to find. I shall be back for I can never leave. For many people, Jones was the leader that they craved with a message that they could follow. Jordan Vilches joined the people's temple at 12 years old when her 23 year old sister became one of Jones's followers. She said, the temple really became my family. Jones's biological son, Stephen Gandhi later said, so much was attractive and unique that we turned a blind eye on what was wrong. Soon, Jones began promising his followers that they would create a social utopia together. And paranoid from the negative media exposés, he and his congregation moved to Guyana, South America. He took a few hundred followers and set up a farm compound known as the People Temple Agriculture Project in order to create what he called a socialite paradise and a sanctuary for him and his congregation. He claimed that the relocation was sparked by the growing fears of a nuclear holocaust that plagued the 1970s. Many see this move as his attempt to flee from prosecution for possibly stealing from his followers, as well as his illicit relationships. By 1977, Jones and around 1,000 of his congregation, those he called the purest communists there are, had moved to Guyana. The farm compound was soon named Jonestown. Rather than the expected tropical religious paradise, the members of the people's temple who accompanied Jones soon discovered that it was much more of a prison than a utopia. Once he had sequestered his followers at Jonestown, Jones himself fully became the tyrant he had only hinted at being before. Upon arrival at Jonestown, all members of the people's temple had their passports and any medication confiscated by Jones. They lived in cramped cabins in the 3,800 acre compound and were all required to work in the burning jungle sun where they were besieged by mosquitoes and tropical disease. Food was scarce or was possibly withheld by Jones to encourage subservience. Most meals consisted of some form of rice. And so they ate rice for breakfast, rice soup at lunch, and rice and beans for dinner with the occasional vegetables. The elderly or sick were allowed to eat eggs, while Jones claimed he had low blood sugar and would eat separately from the congregation as he would eat meat when no one else was allowed. If anyone questioned Jones's authority, they would be inflicted with harsh punishments. Jones had initially promised to those who moved to Jonestown that he would stop the corporal beatings. But within an hour, he broke that promise. He refused to allow anyone to leave the property of Jonestown and Jones reportedly began drugging people who were on duty at outposts to keep them from running away. Furthermore, he was said to secretly drug the people who wanted to dissent to keep them compliant. Soon, guards armed with guns began patrolling the perimeter, reportedly to keep people out, but also to force people to stay within. Initially, when people joined the people's temple, they were required to sign either a blank piece of paper that Jones would later fill in, or a typed piece of paper whose words Jones would cover as they signed. He was petrified of people leaving him and did everything he could to prevent it. If someone attempted to leave Jonestown, Jones would fill in the signed page in order to blackmail them into staying. Often, he would fill in the pages to keep the custody of people's children. That way, they couldn't leave without abandoning their own kids. Under those circumstances, many stayed. Jones began conducting his sermons over the loudspeakers, which often continued for six hours a day, and he started holding meetings at night. His followers began worrying about his worsening mental state and drug use. It wasn't long after arrival that Jones actually had a throne erected in the main pavilion. Soon, all members' phone calls and letters were monitored and censored to control what information was released and Jones began expecting people to report on each other if they caught someone breaking any of his rules. As part of his paranoia, Jones reportedly became obsessed with how he would be remembered in history and would grow furious at the way he and his beliefs were being ridiculed by the media. He believed he was being cheated out of his rightful place in history. As Jones's obsession grew, he would reportedly conduct loyalty tests that involved practicing mass suicide. He would wake up his followers in the dead of night and give them each a cup filled with a red liquid that he said was poison and ordered that they drank it. They only passed if they drank without question. Jones would wait up to an hour after they drank to tell them that it hadn't been poisoned and they weren't going to die. Jones responded to the public's reproach of these actions by saying, We will die unless we are granted freedom from harassment and asylum." Followers began escaping the people's temple, afraid of what Jones was capable of. Some of those who escaped formed a group called Concerned Relatives to oppose Jones. The group met to detail what they had experienced while part of the people's temple and plan on how to save those whom they left behind. They claimed that Jones was keeping people trapped in Jonestown against their will and that they required public and governmental help to free them. At the time, they were getting some publicity, but nothing like what they needed to take down an established leader like Jones, who had thousands still supporting him. Among those who went to the Guyana Jonestown with Jones was his reported son with Grace Stowen, John Victor. Grace had actually fled to escape and was forced to leave her son behind. Grace Stoen left the temple long before the move to Jonestown, and she claimed to have defected after Jones waved a gun at her and threatened to shoot her if she fell asleep during a planning commission meeting. Then she reportedly witnessed a 40-year-old woman being mistreated after disagreeing with Jones's methods. Once free, Grace began appealing to the U.S. and Guyana government to help her regain custody of her son and even disputed that Jones was the father as Victor's birth certificate listed her husband, Tim Stone, as the father. Victor had originally gone to Jonestown with Tim, who then later defected from the temple and left his son there in Jones's care. In 1978, Tim, who was actually an attorney who graduated from Stanford Law School, then joined Grace, his now estranged wife, and her efforts. Tim met with Congress members in Washington to gain support and explain in detail the exact objections he had against Jones. Simultaneously, Deborah Layton Blakely began publicly condemning Jones and the People's Temple. She even went so far as to write an 11 page detailed affidavit to the US government titled, The Threat and Possibility of Mass Suicide by Members of the People's Temple. Blakely had been a member since she was 18 and had originally joined to bring structure and self-discipline to her own life. She revealed that she worked as the financial secretary for the temple and that she had witnessed Jones's deviation from its message of equality and social change as he became more tyrannical and paranoid. She claimed that he met all opposition from members with threats and as treason. He reportedly threatened all black members of the temple by saying that if they did not go to Guyana with him, they would be forced into concentration camps where they would die and he alleged that he had connections with the mafia and the Soviet government, which he used in threats to keep people compliant. Blakely stated that Jones demanded loyalty above all else and that his ideal loyalty was expressed by giving up everything, even basic necessities. The most loyal were in the worst physical condition. Dark circles under one's eyes or extreme loss of weight were considered signs of loyalty. Blakely had still been a member when Jones learned that Grace and Tim Stowen were seeking the US government's aid to retrieve their son from Jonestown. Jones responded with angry tirades and threatened that as long as John Victor was in Guyana, they would never get their son back. The Stowens incited hysteria in Jonestown, with Jones trying to pay people up to $10,000 to silence Tim Stowen, Jones later threatened mass suicide of all Temple members if the Stowen custody case was not stopped. When the court case was delayed, they called off the threat. Eventually, in November, 1977, a San Francisco court officially granted Grace Stowen custody of her son, John Victor. However, the court order meant that Jones was now unable to return to the US without being brought to court for not returning the child. But the court order also meant that Jones couldn't allow John Victor ever to leave Jonestown because he would be legally taken from him. When Tim flew to Guyana to retrieve John Victor, he was prevented from even entering Jonestown. The Guyanese judge who was supporting his claim removed himself from helping in the case because his life had been threatened. Tim eventually had to return to the US without his son when his visa expired. He reportedly feared that if he persisted, he would end up a corpse. In the affidavit to the US government, Blakely went on to describe how, in response to the growing criticism and possible threats from the outside, Jones began something called White Nights. White Nights would occur about once a week and begin with Jones declaring a state of emergency in Jonestown. The entire congregation would be woken by deafening sirens and about half of them would have to arm themselves mostly with rifles, and ensure that everyone in Jonestown was awake and ready in case of a real emergency. Jones treated each white knight like a real crisis and required everyone to do the same. There would then be a huge meeting where Jones would often claim that the jungle was filled with deadly mercenaries ready to attack and invade Jonestown. Jones was convinced that there was some sort of threat outside of Jonestown. He claimed that because he was a prophet, he knew that they would be attacked at some point. Blakely recalled details from a few of the White Knights, one where Jones conducted the poison loyalty test. This time with the added threat that if they did not all commit mass suicide, they would be tortured by mercenaries with guns and machetes. Another time, Jones staged a sniper attack, claiming that he'd been targeted at the latest White Night, Blakely said that her former sister in law, Carolyn Layton, gave sleeping pills to John Victor Stowen, Grace and Tim's son, and her own son, Kim O'Prokes, because Jones had told her everyone was going to die that night. Layton had given them sleeping pills because she didn't want to have to shoot them if they were awake. After this incident, Blakely soon left Jonestown by requesting a reassignment to the nearby Georgetown and secretly requesting her sister send her money for a plane ticket. She also had to seek out the United States Embassy in Guyana to help her escape. In 1978, as most politicians were cutting any ties that may have still held with Jones, Harvey Milk actually wrote to President Jimmy Carter in order to defend Jones against the condemning accusations, claiming that Jones was a man of the highest character, and the claims against him were apparent bald-faced lies. In the face of so much scrutiny, Jones eventually hired the attorneys Mark Lane and Donald Freed to help defend him from the growing accusations against him Jonestown and the People's Temple. Both men were known as JFK assassination conspiracy theorists and attempted to make the case that the accusations against Jones were all part of a conspiracy from the US intelligence agency that didn't want to see him as powerful as he once had been. Jones also began negotiating with the Soviet Union in hopes of moving himself and the temple members to Russia. Jones apparently believed that Soviet Russia was the perfect country. A sentiment that the 20 million Soviet citizens who were either put to death or died because of the oppressive regime likely wouldn't have shared. Jonestown actually hosted a few delegations from the Soviet Union and Jones had temple members begin learning Russian. As Jonestown remained in Guyana, many suspect that Jones was never serious about the move and instead used it as a threat to the US government who was locked in the cold war with the Soviet Union at the time. It was around this period that Leo J. Ryan, a California Congressman became interested in the case and decided to examine Jones and Jonestown himself. He had heard that people were trapped in Jonestown against their will, and he brought reporters and photographers with him to investigate. He called it a fact-finding mission and set out to differentiate which of the rumors about Jones were actually true and to dismiss those that were lies. In November, 1978, Ryan and his crew, along with some worried family members of those living in Jonestown, all flew to Guyana. In his entourage were Grace and Tim Stowen, who joined Ryan in the hopes of finally getting their son back from Jones. The temple had heard of Stowen's return and banned them from ever actually entering the grounds. Yet everyone besides the Stowens was all surprisingly welcomed to Jonestown. Jones actually hosted a reception for Ryan and those with him and even allowed the television crew to tour the compound of Jonestown. The tour was led by Jones's wife, Marceline. Ryan had actually planned his trip as a rescue mission attempting to free those who were held in Jonestown against their will. What occurred did not go according to his plan at all. A note was passed by Vernon Gosney to one of the journalists and was meant for Ryan, which stated that he and another temple member needed help leaving Jonestown. Once he read the message, Ryan began to collect everyone he had brought to quickly leave. He also invited anyone who wanted to escape Jonestown to come with him. Though there were defectors who wanted to leave with Ryan and in fact, 15 managed to escape with him as he fled, Ryan was attacked with a knife by another temple member, Don Sly. Ryan managed to fight off the attack and escape from Jonestown. At the time, Jones actually allowed all of his visitors to leave along with the 15 temple members, but their relief was short-lived. They were far from out of the woods. The escalation in extremism hit a breaking point when Ryan returned to the airport with Jonestown defectors in tow. The Port Ketuma airstrip had two planes waiting for Ryan and his crew to make a swift exit from the country. But just as they were about to board, they were attacked. Jones had sent his armed guards called the Red Brigade to intercept and stop Ryan and the reporters from leaving. The Red Brigade included Joe Wilson, Thomas Keis Sr. and Ronnie Dennis, who all arrived at the airstrip on a red tractor trailer. The men opened fire on Ryan, the reporters and cameramen and the defectors. One of the 15 defectors, Larry Layton, actually pulled out a gun and also began firing at Ryan's crew. Ryan was shot and killed along with four others, including one of the temple's defectors, Patricia Parks. During the attack at the airport, Jones called a meeting of everyone in Jonestown at the main pavilion in the compound. An audio recording exists of Jones's speech. It has now become known as the Death Tape.
2: How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life but in spite of all of what I've tried a handful of our people with their lives have made our lives impossible there's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today not only we're in a compound situation not only are there those who have left and committed the betrayal of the century some have stolen children from others and they're in pursuit right now to kill them because they stole their children and we we are sitting here waiting on a powder keg I don't think this is what we want to do with our babies I don't think that's what we had in mind to do with our babies it was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial no man takes my life from me I lay my life down so, to, to sit here and wait for the catastrophe that's going to happen on that airplane, it's going to be a catastrophe, or almost happened here. Almost happened. The congressman was nearly killed here. But you can't steal people's children. You can't take off with people's children without expecting a violent reaction. And that's not so unfamiliar to us either. If we, Even if we were Judeo-Christian, if we weren't communists, the world, the kingdom, with violence, and the violence shall take it by force. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed.
0: In the background of Jones's speech, people can be heard clapping and cheering. Children can be heard muttering and crying. Jones says that he had never lied to his followers and that a plane would fly over the top of Jonestown filled with mercenaries who would parachute down to kill them all. He said, they need to be kind to their children and kind to their seniors and all take a potion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly.
2: So my opinion is that We be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. We can't go back. They won't leave us alone. They're now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen. And there's no way, no way we can survive.
0: He called it a revolutionary suicide and mass suicide for socialism. The next pieces of audio may be disturbing to listen to.
2: Well, come everybody dies. Some place that hope runs out, because everybody dies. I haven't seen anybody that didn't die. and I like to choose my own kind of death for a change. I'm tired of being tormented to hell. That's what I'm tired of. I'm tired of I people's lives in my hands and I certainly don't want your life in my hand. but I'm gonna tell you Christine without me, life has no meaning. I'm the best friend you'll ever have.
0: During his speech Jones began debating with a female temple member who some believe may have been Jones's wife Marceline, about his determination to commit suicide and the fact that there were many children among them. They argue about whether or not to include the children in their plan for revolutionary suicide.
2: Is the Revolutionary Suicide Council. I'm not talking about self-destruction. Self I'm talking about what we have no other road. I will take your, your call, we will put it to the Russians, and I can tell you the answer now because I'm a prophet. Call the Russians and tell them to if they'll take us. I said I'm afraid to die. I don't By think no you means. are. I don't think you are. But uh I look at our babies and I think they deserve I, to live. I agree. You know? They do des- but also they deserve what's more, they deserve peace. We all came here for peace. You and know? we've have we had it? No. I tried to give it to you. I've laid down my life practically. I've practically died every day to give you peace. And you still not had any peace. You look better than I've seen you in a long while, but it's still not the kind of peace that I wanted to give you.
0: Jones was convinced that the mercenaries he expected would shoot some of our innocent babies and they'll torture our children. They'll torture some of our people here. They'll torture our seniors. Marceline was apparently restrained by other members to stop her protests. When other members began to object, Jones scolded them saying, stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialist or communist to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. Jones can be heard saying, don't be afraid to die that death is just stepping over into another plane, and that it's a friend. These were Jones's final words.
2: Take our life from us. We laid it down, we got tired. We didn't commit suicide, we committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world.
0: Jones made a fruit cocktail that he laced with both cyanide and Valium. This is the horrific event where the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. Though not technically Kool-Aid, he still used grape flavoring to mask the bitterness of the poison. Although unspeakably gruesome to think about. It is important to note just how brutal this method of suicide truly is. True Crime podcast host and Jonestown expert, Marcus Parks, explained the experience of death by cyanide poisoning. It's horrifying. It is not in any way a painless death. The death took anywhere between five and 10 minutes. First, your entire body starts to convulse. Then your mouth fills with a mixture of saliva, blood and vomit. Then you pass out and then you die. Your body is deprived of oxygen completely. It's a horrific death. Parks theorizes that Jones chose this method because of its ability to prove lethal on such a huge scale in a relatively short amount of time. However, he says that quote, one little known fact is that it's estimated that the entire process from beginning to end took four hours. He says the beverage probably tasted like bitter almonds because of the chemicals distinct flavor. Tragically, one of Jones's mistresses can be heard coming over the microphone during the group's audio taped suicide, trying to reassure the chaotic masses that the disturbing cries of their children were no cause for concern. The woman told the crowd, it's not painful. They're just crying because it tastes bitter. It is reported that nurses and other adults fed the children the poisonous solution through drops out of a syringe. And once the older members were the only ones left alive, they were surrounded by armed guards and made to line up and drink their own portion of the mixture one by one. 909 people died in the mass murder-suicide and 304, were horrifically children. Jim Jones was found dead at the age of 47 with his head on a pillow and a bullet wound in his forehead. In a later autopsy, it was confirmed that Jones had committed suicide with a gun and had lethal amounts of barbiturates in his system. The news shocked the world. The Jonestown Massacre was the largest loss of American life in a single event until September 11, 2001. Among the dead was six-year-old John Victor Stowen. Some people managed to survive the mass murder suicide by escaping to the jungle. Those who fled, including Odell Rhodes and Stanley Clayton, recalled that the children were given the drink by their own parents, who then drank after. In total, only 33 people survived the massacre. Later, some of the members were found with bent needles in or near their arms, which implied that not everyone was compliant to Jones's mass suicide demand. Instead, those who opposed were likely murdered by other members who forced the poison into their veins. The ground was covered with bodies and many had sadly even died with their arms embracing one another. The few who weren't affected were many of Jones's own sons who were away at the time. Stephen Gandhi, Jim Jr. and Tim Jones were playing basketball in Georgetown against the Guyanese national team at the time of the mass suicide. Stephen later recalled that the boys had disobeyed Jones's order to return to the Jonestown compound because they were too cowardly to join in the mass suicide order. Jordan Vilchez mentioned earlier as the 12 year old who joined the people's temple was in Georgetown at the time of the tragedy. She later recalled that the mass suicide occurred because everyone participated in it. And because of that, it went as far as it did. To this day, more than 400 bodies from the Jonestown massacre are unclaimed. These poor souls now reside at the Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California. In 2008, a memorial was dedicated there for the victims, 32 years after the tragedy. Those who survived the horror of Jonestown tried to build new lives, but many remain haunted. Years later in an interview, Jones's firstborn son, Stephen Gandhi said, people ask, How can you ever be proud of your father? I just have to love him and forgive him. The American Psychological Association explains that the Jonestown cult provides a sad but vulnerable example of social psychological evaluation and learning. To this day, researchers continue to study the complex mental processes that played into facilitating this unconceivable tragedy. Interestingly, many scholars draw connections between Jones's methods and those of totalitarian government control tactics. For example, Jones carried out constant surveillance over his followers and watched for any disobedience like a hawk, taking away any independence or chance for individual expression from his disciples. Secondly, Jones maintained a coerced system of self-incrimination, wherein followers would be made to write down their mistakes or fears so that Jones could later blackmail them with this sensitive information or otherwise use it against them. Finally, Jones created a bizarre world of contradictions within his congregation, requiring members to thank him profusely for providing them with food and work, while in contrast, The reality of the situation was that the majority of followers were malnourished and worked to the bone. After prolonged exposure to these brainwashing techniques, it is a little easier to understand why Jonestown members essentially felt that they existed in their own version of reality. Though we've worked drinking the Kool-Aid into our modern vocabulary, it is important to know the chilling and horrible events that sparked the phrase. The Jonestown Massacre was the largest mass suicide in history. It is hard to put into words the caliber of loss at this scale. This tragedy will likely haunt those affected for their entire lives and still manages to fascinate and horrify the rest of us to this day. Today, people are still trying to understand how something so horrific could have ever happened.